I have a question for you, and I usually begin with some sort of question or, or story. Uh, how many are pet owners or have owned a pet? Can I get a show of hands? That's, that's a large number. It's pretty common for us to own pets. You guys know me. I grew up in rural Illinois in the country, country bumpkin, on a small little tenant farm. And so we were blessed to have a number of animals as pets. We had your typical dogs and cats, but then we also had rabbits, chickens, uh, lizards, fish, guinea pigs. I think I've told the story about the guinea pig that I had in seventh grade named Herbert, who I got and brought home and um, just less than a couple weeks later had three babies. <laughs> Herbert quickly became Herberta. And <laughs> It was just, it was a blessing for me at that time because it was, uh, I was able to uh, sell those guinea pigs back to the pet store. So it was like total jackpot, you know, I was like, got a new pet and I made some money selling the, the three uh, guinea pigs that were birthed back to the pet store. We also had some horses, even some of the cattle and pigs earned our affections and earned nicknames uh, and, and were in many ways much like pets because of their personalities. My favorite animal, though, out of them all, dogs. I've always been a dog lover. And who, who's with me? Who's, who are my canine lovers? All right, with some hands. I'm surprised with all these city slickers that uh, all the, the hands that went up. But um, they, they're, they're notoriously known for being man's best friend. You, you, are probably aware that dogs have this remarkable ability to sense human pain and suffering. In fact, there's stories, and I know that many are probably have seen stories of dog rescues where a child's been drowning and the dog has jumped in to save them, or another wild animal or somebody else's pet that isn't so nice started attacking the master and the dog comes to the rescue. There's this inherent nature with dogs that can sense human pain and suffering. Perhaps this is why dogs are one of the most popular pets on the planet. Now, if someone were to ever associate or refer to me as a dog, I don't know that that's the most offensive thing that they could ever say to me because of my extreme love for them. But in our passage today, we're actually going to see, some, we're going to see someone referred to as a dog. Ironically, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who makes the reference. And if that doesn't intrigue you, his reference is actually to a Gentile woman. In the Old Testament, the word Gentiles referred to the many different nations and eventually became a reference to everyone outside of Israel. The nation of Israel was to serve as God's witness, pointing them to faith and to God's righteousness. Sadly, by the time that the Lord Jesus Christ came to minister, most Israelites, due to the legalistic nature and the religious structure that developed over time by the scribes and Pharisees, pointed to their self-righteousness that had them only look down on Gentiles. In ancient Israel, the dog was anything but man's best friend. In fact, calling someone a dog was one of the most insulting things that you could say to a person. God's word mentions dogs frequently, and most of the references are derogatory in nature. If we look back to the law, 
There's a reference in Deuteronomy 23, 18 uh, of a, a homosexual male being referred to as, as a dog. In Revelation, in the New Testament, unbelievers who were shut out of the New Jerusalem are also referred to as dogs. It was common knowledge. And many Gentiles were even aware that Jews thought of non-Jews as dogs. This is sad, but true. So bringing this reality a little bit closer to home, religious Jews would have thought of you and I as dogs. How would you respond if the Lord Jesus Christ were to reference you as a dog? Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. The title of our message is Our Lord's Mercy to the Gentiles. And as we'll see, our Lord's encounter with this Gentile woman actually provides deeper insights into God's incredible mercy and his sovereign plan of salvation. A salvation that includes both Jews and non-Jews. Gentiles, like ourselves, if we trust completely in Christ on the basis of faith, just as this woman does. Let's read the account together. It's in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, and this is what it says. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a, was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon having left. As your bulletin outline indicates, our passage reveals three insights from our Lord's interaction with a Gentile woman that foreshadows his mercy to us as Gentiles. And I want to invite you to step into this story. I want to ask you, if you would, with me, step into this story and imagine for a moment someone that you love dearly, uh, suffering from desperate circumstances. There are those in our church, and I, I just mentioned uh, the Furcos, that don't have to imagine too much those that are terminally ill with cancer. Others of us have unsaved family and friends who are lost spiritually. How can this woman's example of faith encourage us? How will God's hand of mercy reach out to you today? Each insight is in your outline, and as is our custom, we're going to look at them one at a time. The first insight is this. Consider the paradoxical reality of this Gentile woman. The paradox or contradiction being that this woman is viewed as a dog by the Pharisees and Israelites, yet she serves as an incredible example of faith. In order to understand the paradox of this woman's reality, 
It's important to understand where we are in the context of Mark 7, which serves as a backdrop. Jesus has just addressed the scribes and the Pharisees for their legalism and self-righteousness that began at the beginning of Mark chapter 7. They falsely believed and adamantly taught that people were defiled from the outside based on what they did or didn't do according to God's law. Also based on the oral traditions that they imagined and created. After the Lord rebukes them, he sets the record straight by teaching his disciples and everyone else in the crowd that nothing from outside defiles the person. But on the contrary, every person on the planet is defiled by their own sinful hearts, including the Pharisees. This was the universal lesson that we heard last week that applies directly to all of us. It affirms that the only way for a person to be declared righteous in God's sight is by true faith. Only God can change the depraved sin nature of a human heart from the inside out. He causes it to be born again. It is an internal gospel reality of faith. The Pharisees, we learned, had it completely backwards. They focused on external matters. And so they in the process, disregarded justification by faith. So now the Lord, to reinforce what he's just taught, he's going to go out and minister to the Gentiles. This is exactly what's going to happen. Look at verse 24. Jesus got up. He went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape. Notice, the last place that any scribe or Pharisee would have gone especially for the purpose of ministry, would have been a region like this, a, a concentrated Gentile region. Remember, most Jews wouldn't even travel near Samaria between Judea and Galilee to avoid the Samaritans who were considered half-breeds, right? They were Jews that married Gentiles. And so there, you can imagine how their contempt for full-blooded Gentiles is even more amplified, and so often was the case, Jesus has this fame that is, and notoriety that precedes him, even here in Gentile territory. And though he, he tried to escape uh, detection, he was unable to do so. And usually when Jesus was trying to fly under the radar, there are a few different reasons uh, why. He oftentimes tried to find isolated time where he could instruct the disciples, or he would use that additional time to spend in prayer. Um, he also would fly under the radar when he sensed the crowd and their growing desire to take him by force and to make him king. We've seen that take place as well. The text here doesn't specify. But what it does tell us is that there was a woman who heard that he was there and she sought him out. Notice what verses 25 and 26 say. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Verse 25 introduces us to her reality, which is the second subpoint in your outline. Her daughter has an unclean spirit, and she's desperate for help. Matthew's account shares with us that her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. 
The situation sounds eerily similar to the one that we're going to see in Mark 9 coming up of the boy who was being thrashed by a demon and his father comes to Jesus in, in a similar desperation to seek Jesus' help. This woman's reality reflects a very difficult trial. And those of us who have children, we know that pain well, don't we? When, when one of our children suffer, there's nothing that grips our heart more. And here, there's this little girl, her daughter, who is being, who's being held captive by a demon, or as we've learned about demons in demonology, even a host of demons. We've taught about uh, demon possession in the past, and it involves multiple dimensions. Satan, it can, legions of demons working in unison with the depraved human heart can take control of the possessed person and torture them and put them in immense pain. It's more than probable that her daughter was being progressively scarred, even maimed. And imagine for a moment how you would feel if your little daughter were in this state. What would you do? The reality of her trial leads her to pursue Jesus for help. And certainly this is a principle of application that we can take right away. May this woman's example remind us of our need when we encounter trials that we need to go vertical right away. Amen? Pastor David Cummings preached on May 1st, and it was a great message. If, if you didn't get to hear it on trials, I want to encourage you to go back and listen on our website. The paradoxical reality when this Gentile woman uh, is, is relentlessly pursuing Jesus Christ to, to, to help her and meet her needs, is set in a juxtaposition to the Pharisees who were only pursuing Christ to attack him, to deny his works as well as their, their need for him. Another paradoxical aspect is her religion. Verse 26 confirms that she's a Gentile. There's no apparent connection to Israel, but what we learn is, is staggering. I invite you to turn to the parallel account in Matthew 15, if you would, because there we'll gain a sense of her faith-driven pursuit of Christ. Starting in Matthew 15, 22, it says, and a Canaanite woman, and remember the Mark's gospel is the newspaper version of the gospels, right? The shortest of the accounts. And so we looked at the other synoptic gospels and so we can gain a little bit uh, more depth into some of these narratives. And that's what we're going to do here. And a Canaanite woman, starting in Matthew 15, 22, from that region, came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came up and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, let's stop here for a moment. How she addresses the Lord is absolutely profound. She addresses him as Lord, even as son of David. Her posture is one of worship. 
Her plea is one of desperation. And it's really best summarized by the last three words in verse 25. Lord, help me. As one theologian shared, she is simply a Gentile mother crying out to the Jewish Messiah. Do you see the paradox of her response in contrast to that of the Pharisees? If anyone should have recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, it should have been them. If anyone recognized him as son of David, it should have been them. If anyone should have fallen to their knees in reverence and worship, it should have been them. Instead, it's a lowly Gentile woman, humbly recognizing him, despite her reality, despite her religious background, also despite her race. Look at verse 26. It shares that she is of the Syrophoenician race. This not only means that she doesn't have the religious credentials of an Israelite or the religious ethnic pedigree that the Pharisees would have been clinging to, her race actually makes matters much worse. Both the Syrians and the Phoenicians were, were long-standing and historic enemies of Israel. Matthew identifies her as a Canaanite, which means she was a descendant of the ancient race that Israel actually tried to destroy. So this just adds a triple whammy to the paradoxical twist. She isn't merely a Gentile, but she's a Syrian, uh, she has Syrian, Phoenician, and Canaanite roots that make her one of the most despised of all Gentiles with what seems like the world against her. What a picture of grace this provides for the person who has no religious background. The person who falsely thinks that because of their pagan past or because of their lack of religious lineage that they're unworthy to come to church. They're unworthy to seek God's forgiveness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this woman's faith is going to provide testimony for us. Not only does she express faith, but we see it shine through her resilience. Turn back to Mark 7 and verse 26. It says, and she kept asking him, repeatedly asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The ESV translation says she begged him. In Matthew's account, the disciples tried to silence her, but she kept out and shouting from behind them. What an example this provides of her resilient faith. Do you and I pursue Christ? Do we relentlessly plead with him to answer the petitions of faith that we bring to the table? James 5.16 reminds us that it's the fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much. J.C. Ryle shared the following insight about this passage that provides a principle of application to parents and to those with unsaved family. He says, fathers and mothers are especially bound to remember the case of the, this Gentile woman. They cannot give their children new hearts. They can give them Christian education and show them the way of life, but they cannot give them a will to choose Christ's service and a heart to love God. 
Yet there is one thing they can always do. They can pray for them. They can pray for the conversion of profligate sons who will have their own way and run greedily into sin. They can pray for the conversion of worldly daughters who set their affections on things below and love pleasure more than God. Such prayers are heard on high. Such prayers will often bring down blessings. Never, never let us forget that the children for whom many prayers have been offered seldom finally perish. Let us pray more for our sons and daughters. Even when they will not let us speak to them about religion, they cannot prevent us speaking for them to God. End quote. A resilient faith is a praying faith. And Ryle makes a clearer point of application for us as we consider this woman's pursuit of Christ. She's pleading with him to grant mercy to her unsaved daughter, to grant mercy to her demon-possessed daughter. I don't know what kind of situation your children are in. Those of you that might have um, older children that aren't walking with the Lord, that never committed their lives to Christ, I don't know what their situation is, but I know it's not demon possession, Lord willing, right? I mean, this is, a, this is an awful condition. And the paradoxical reality of this Gentile woman can again be contrasted with the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees known for? They were known for their public, long, verbose prayers. They were known even to uh, pray to themselves and view others with contempt even while they're praying. We see an example of this in Luke 18 with the tax collector and the Pharisee. Right? She comes to the Lord interceding for her daughter and reduces her request to three desperate words that are recorded in Matthew's account. Lord, help me. And she personally lays her petition at the feet of Jesus. So how will he respond? Well, this sets us up for the second insight in our outline. We need to grasp the parabolic response of our Lord. In verse 27, Jesus responds with a parable, or what can be described as a parabolic response that we need to grasp. A parable being a short story that teaches a spiritual, a spiritual truth. This is what he says. Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here, Jesus is mindful of the ethnic tension that existed between the Jew and the Gentile, and he responds with this purpose parable. At first glance, it might appear that he's lacking grace, but as we look at it and put it under the microscope, we're going to see that that's anything but the case. In, in the Greek, the word first is brought all the way forward for emphasis. Okay? It's in the emphatic position. It could even be rendered, first, let the children be satisfied or filled. One pastor shared this commentary. As Jesus speaks with this woman, he never slams the door of hope in her face. Jesus says, let the children first be filled. That word first was exactly what this broken-hearted mother needed to hear. Jesus did not say, you cannot have what you're looking for. He said, I have come to the children of Israel, and they must be filled first. 
She took that to mean that seconds were available, end quote. And the beauty of our Lord's parable is that it reflects the priority of his ministry to the lost children of Israel, while at the same time letting her know that he's well aware of this negative attitude that Jews have towards Gentiles. It's just, we see the Lord every now and then provide answers to people and, and their questions, and they're so precise. It's just incredible to see. And there's this endearing sediment that is sentiment that is em- embedded in his comment. This is validated by the Greek term that Jesus used for dogs in verse 27. When, when Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, they actually used this very harsh Greek term. It was mongrels or, or scavengers, even wild dogs. And proverbially speaking, dogs were most closely associated to the defilement of pigs. And we see examples of this connection in in the scriptures. Like in 2 Peter 2.22, when Peter writes a false teacher saying, And this happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. In Matthew 7.6, Jesus also uses this familiar connection, saying, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Here Jesus uses the harsh Greek word for dogs. Okay, However, in verse 27 of our passage today with the Gentile woman, he uses the term that actually means small puppy. Or it can be translated house pet or or, or small dog. In essence, Jesus is saying, first, let the children be satisfied or that word can be filled. I already mentioned another uh, translation. And then he goes on, for it is not good, that word can also mean proper, and I like proper there for the translation, to take the children's bread and throw it to the house pet. Jesus is not suggesting that the pet, the house pet or the dog not get fed, which in this instance represents the woman. He's saying the priority of feeding and making sure that the children of Israel have enough to eat, that should take place first before feeding our house pets, referring to the Gentiles. And this is the proverbial picture that's being painted here. Yes, it implies that the woman is less of a priority, but she's still a priority. And Jesus understands her need and the spiritual need of all Gentiles. And like this Gentile woman, we should also grasp the Lord's parabolic response as it relates to us being Gentiles receiving Christ's mercy through the gospel. The Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to actually uh, see the, the, the distinction and to see the priority when he penned Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. There's a privilege that comes with being God's chosen people. And that doesn't mean that we Gentiles are somehow second rate in God's eyes. And this is important for us to grasp. 
The Apostle Paul goes on later in Romans to help us understand how Gentiles were grafted into God's plan of salvation in Romans chapter 11. And it's all related to his mercy as you get to the, the bottom of that chapter. It's interesting. You know how in your Bible sometimes you just know it's like on that side and down on the bottom. That's why I say, say that. This, is, this Gentile woman provides a foreshadowing of that mercy extended to us through Christ and the gospel. And God wants us to grasp the priority, just like this Israelite, or excuse me, Gentile woman did of, of Israel. How do we know that she grasped it? Our passage reveals her answer in our third and final insight. So far, we've covered two out of three insights from our Lord's interaction with this Gentile woman, foreshadowing his incredible mercy to us. We've considered the paradoxical reality. We've grasped the parabolic response. The third and final insight is to be encouraged by the powerful results. And here we're going to see as the subpoints indicate her great faith and finish with his great mercy. Look at verse 28. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. You know, this blew me away. You know what she did? She steps into the parable. She literally steps into the parable and acknowledges her understanding. She reveals tremendous faith. And it should encourage us. She does something that no Pharisee, no scribe, not even a, a disciple of Christ has, has been able to do yet or has demonstrated. Normally when Jesus taught parables, what did he need to do afterward? He needed to explain them, right? He had to take the disciples aside and then they would say, Lord, please help us to understand the parable. We've seen that repeatedly throughout all the Gospels. She doesn't do that. She responds. She steps right in, letting her know that she, she, she demonstrates her firm understanding. The woman in her humility and faith is basically saying, Lord, I'm good with being a dog so long as I get the crumbs from you. You're the master. Lord, you are the master. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with not being first priority. I understand it. I get it. James Edwards shares the woman's reply to Jesus in verse 28 shows her understanding and acceptance of Israel's privilege. Indeed, she appears to... This, is, this blew my mind. Indeed, she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. When dogs eat crumbs from the table, they do not rob children of their food. They simply eat what is theirs from the surplus of the children. End quote. Even the Lord is blown away by her testimony of faith. Just how great it is. In fact, those are the words that he uses in Matthew 15, 28. When he replied to her, he says, Oh, woman, your faith is great. And the word great, it's, it's in the emphatic. It's brought forward for even more stress in the Lord's reply. Only this woman 
And one other Gentile are praised publicly for their faith by Jesus. The other one, just in case you're curious, is the centurion at Capernaum, who we'll get to study in our very next chapter in Mark 8. Martin Luther found the story of the Syrophoenician woman a great wonder and comfort. She, said Luther, asked for no more than her due. She took Christ at his own words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. End quote. This woman had persistent faith. This woman had humble faith. This woman had trusting faith. What an example for us to look to. That we would trust, that we would persist, that we would be humble. Powerful, powerful testimony. How did the Lord respond to her great faith? Be encouraged as we see his great mercy in our final two verses. Verse 29 says, And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon, the demon having left. What mercy. What mercy Jesus provides. He heals the child based on the mother's faith. And notice her unwavering faith here. It's remarkable. She didn't grab Jesus by the shoulder and say, I need you to come with me and heal my daughter. She took him right at his word, didn't she? She trusted him right at his word, which is different than what we saw with Jairus and his daughter when he grabbed a hold of Jesus and said, you need to come to me, come with me to, to heal. He, he was already doubting in his faith. And we learned in that passage that that is why the, the hemorrhaging woman even intersected in his path to help even bolster his faith and to trust the Lord. And he was a synagogue official. So powerful. Our Lord mercifully and powerfully performs this miracle from a distance. Can you imagine the joy this mother experienced when she got back and her daughter, who was normally being thrashed and thrown to and from, maimed, scarred, lying on her bed, not moving, fully restored, any parent that has ever gone through and seen their child suffer and then seen God's mercy shows up, it's unbelievable. It captures our hearts. Helps us to praise. And no doubt, when she got back, you know, she was just rooted in that faith that had her anchored. And what a picture this is for us. His mercy will do that. It will nail down the the. The, the teaching of his word. It will help us to cling to the promises that he wants us to see. And I'm preaching to the choir, to this congregation, as it relates to him not leaving us, not forsaking us, him guiding every single step, him knowing exactly. And you have to listen to David Cummings' message. I, I really appreciated that he, 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 he controls the, the thermostat and the timer. Right? He knows just how much pressure to apply. He knows just how much heat to apply. That's one thing that I remember that was just, just, it's so good. It's so good for us to remember. And all the time that the trial is taking place, what? It's a matter of time. 
right? His mercy will show up. But you know what? We must learn from her example. There must be a persistence. There must be. Can you imagine Jesus healing a Gentile of all people from an incredible distance? I mean, that is something else that we can look at in this story and marvel. And if you think about it, it isn't too hard for us to imagine, is it? Jesus healing a Gentile from a distance. Us being Gentiles ourselves. You know, I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 2 when I thought about his mercy. And I want to close by reading a passage that allows us to celebrate God's mercy to the Gentiles and his sovereign plan of salvation. I want to invite you to turn there. And that's how we'll close our service. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says this. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, a little bit better than dogs, right there, right? Called uncircumcision by the Jews, by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, referring to Gentiles there, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What mercy God has extended to us. Is not your heart just overwhelmed when we see the reality of his redemptive plan? You'll notice in the bottom of your bulletin I included some sermon reflection questions. And I'm not going to read them all, but if you'll look at least to the ones for the third and final point, I think they're worth mentioning. Have you ever spent any, any time meditating on the fact that God created you as a Gentile? That might be a new thought for some of you. I'll be honest, it was, kind of a, it was a new thought for me to spend significant time just thinking about that reality. Could have born, been born in Israel, could have been born a Jew. But God in his sovereignty, in his plan, 
had me born a Gentile. And the bulk of us in this room, Gentiles. How might meditating on this help you cultivate a, a deeper appreciation for God's sovereign plan in salvation? The last one, are you willing to take some time to read and meditate on Ephesians 2 and Romans 11 this week? Listen, if there was one thing that I did in my study that just captured my heart, and I want you to do this, I'm begging you to do this. Take some time and start reading Ephesians chapter 2, that passage we read. Just meditate on it because it allows us to see Christ and the cross. Then I want you to go to Romans chapter 11 and just, just read God's plan. Read about God hardening the heart of Israel and how their, their unbelief is factored into our redemption and how that allows us to be grafted in as Gentiles. It's awesome. It's just that's the only way that you can describe it. It's awesome because God is awesome. And then when you get down to the end of chapter 11, you're going to run into the doxology that Paul writes. How unfathomable, how absolutely mind-blowing it is. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Well, at the beginning of the service, I shared that dogs have a remarkable ability to sense human pain and suffering. And it's still true. They do. But do you know that God created us and designed us with an even greater capacity and superiority to sense human pain and suffering? You? Me? He gave us that ability, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ even provides testimony of this very reality. God created us to sense the pain and needs of others. And may the message we've heard today about our Lord's mercy to the Gentiles remind us that we live in a Gentile-filled world with suffering people who desperately need our Lord's mercy and His glorious gospel. It is His mercy to rescue us, and it is His mercy to rescue others. And may that continue to overwhelm your heart and mine as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are in every way a God of mercy. And we want to just thank you for the narrative and the passage and the very real testimony of the Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman. And the faith that you instilled within her, within her heart. And we know that that has come from you. That's not in and of herself. That was a work that you wrought within her. And Father, we can be so weak in our faith at times. Our persistence in pursuit of you can be so lacking. I pray, Father, for your mercy to continue to abound in my heart and in the heart of our congregation. Everyone who can hear the sound of my voice, Father, would you cultivate a greater faith within us to trust you, to pursue you, to plead with you. Just for your mercies. Oh, your word reminds us that morning by morning, new mercies we'll see. And it's all a measure of your faithfulness. It all allows us to celebrate the reality 
of your person and work. And we pray that we wouldn't lose sight of this and that we wouldn't treat it with indifference or casually, but that we would spend some time, help us to take some time this week just to even meditate on the reality of your sovereignty and mercy in our salvation. And may that stir up within us hearts that want to reach out to those who are suffering without you. And would it also not just be limited to evangelism, but to our ministry, even as we disciple and grow other people so that they can have a more complete picture of who you are and the great mercy that's made available readily to us. Father, thank you for this time. Our hearts are encouraged. We ask that you'll bless us with a second hour, but in between with wonderful fellowship as we just celebrate you in our lives. May our conversations um, edify your name and may they celebrate your mercy because of all that you've done for us. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.